Think about a time when you've been in the dark. Maybe the power has gone out and you're fumbling across the bedroom floor, trying not to step on something or stub your toe on the bed frame. Maybe you've been camping and it's late at night and you're trying to find your way back to the campsite through the trails. Or maybe it feels like darkness. If you've ever played a game, we've got to have a blindfold. But when we think about darkness, we, we learn something. Darkness is disarming. We don't step as confidently where we're going if it's in the dark. Darkness is deceiving. Things don't always seem what they actually are. The shadows are confusing. You think about late at night and you see a shadow on the wall. No, it's not a monster. It's just some limbs outside shining a shadow on the wall. Well, darkness is also disguising. Much can be hidden under the shade of night. A month ago, we heard Jesus say, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 6, and what we learn from that is as physical bread sustains us physically, Jesus as the bread from heaven sustains us spiritually and eternally. So today, I would invite you to open up your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. And we're going to hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world. And here's the main idea, just right up front. As light shines as a guide in the dark, Jesus shines the light of the gospel in our hearts to guide us, to guide us home to him, to make sense of the world around us. Through this text, we see that Jesus, as God, is the only way to understand God and his promises. So John chapter 8, this morning we're just reading one verse, but even as we do that, let us go to God in prayer to ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Guide us by your spirit to see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And may nothing I say or do dim our vision of the light of Christ this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To John chapter 8, look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Amen. Thank you to God for his word. This is an amazing claim. I am the light of the world. Why can Jesus say this? What makes him so confident that he can make this kind of promise? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life? How can he say that? Well, let's look closely and find out. Point number one is the context of light. That first word, again, tells us we need to consider the context of what's happening here. If you look back at chapter 7, 
uh, we see what's going on. This is called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, this is a time about six months after the Passover in the Jewish uh, ceremonial calendar. And it's an eight-day celebration where thousands of people would converge upon Jerusalem and they would set up temporary shelters called booths, kind of like a camping tent. They would gather to commemorate the time when the Jewish people traveled through the wilderness after the exodus. It was a joyous festival that looked back to God's faithfulness and looked forward to his promises. They looked forward to a new exodus when the kingdom of God would be brought in with immeasurable blessing. So during the festival, if you look at chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus goes up to the temple to teach, and there's a mixed response. Some people receive his teaching, some people outright reject it, and many are confused. How can this man teach with such authority? How do we know if what he says is true? What's all this about his father? I mean, we know where he comes from. We know his mom and his dad. We'll look later in chapter 7, verse 37. He makes a statement during a part of the festival, uh, a part of the, a ceremony during the, the broader festival where they would be remembering specifically how God provided water from a rock uh, in the wilderness. And they would look forward to a future salvation time in Isaiah 12, 3, where there was a promise that with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So with this water metaphor in mind, Jesus stands up and he says in verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Astounding. What a picture. It's not one of our I am statements, but it's extremely significant. Water to quench the thirsty soul, to never go thirsty again, like the bread from heaven, to never hunger again. So after this, what do they say? Well, you can look at it. Some say, well, this really is the prophet. This really is the Christ. But there's also division. They don't really get it yet. So Jesus provides another vivid illustration Another part of this festival of celebrating the Feast of Booths was the time where they would be lighting 75-foot-tall torches. So if you look up to the ceiling right here, that apex is exactly 39 feet. You want to know how I know that? I've been there. <laughs> I've been up there. We, installing this uh, in the audiovisual system, we've been up there with a lift many times. It's 39 feet. So if you basically just double that, that's how tall these torches are. They're lighting torches, a giant light to remind them how God guided them in the wilderness. Do you remember? Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day or by night. So if you can imagine how tall that light is, this light would shed light on all the courtyards in Jerusalem during this festival. They remembered God's guiding and protective presence with his people, but they also looked forward to the day when his presence would return in light. 
So Jesus once again takes upon this imagery, upon himself, and ramps it up to the next level. And this is when he says, I am the light of the world. So in this statement, Jesus opens up a whole well of biblical meaning, numerous themes and verses and prophecies probably popping in your mind now. We read in the Old Testament, they converge upon the person of Christ. He presents himself as both the fulfillment of God's guiding light and presence in the wilderness, but also the more expansive fulfillment of God's salvation going to the nations. We read it in the call to worship passage from Isaiah 42.6, where God speaks of his chosen servant, and he says, I will give you, my servant, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. God's servant will be a light for the nations. And of course, the New Testament picks up the theme of light in a lot of ways, uh, many, many verses. Um, But with this immediate context in mind, Jesus fulfilling this Old Testament festival, let's think more deeply about what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. So that was point number one. Point number two is this, that Jesus is the source of light. One of the confusions that people can't quite get over uh, is where Jesus came from. He says in chapter 8, verse 14, you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So he's calling them out. They don't get it. They thought that Jesus was just like any other man from a small town with a mom and a dad. But of course, that's only part of the story. And his audience here, and and particularly in chapter 8, it focuses in on the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders, the ones who are supposed to be the guides of the people. They're in the dark. They're in the dark. They lack the fuller knowledge. They're not seeing where God's promises are pointing. And when he fulfills them, they're missing it. They can't reason their way into understanding. They need God to shed some light. So if you were here a month ago, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, we introduced this series uh, going through some, uh, these I am statements of Jesus. We're exploring one of the most basic questions. Who is Jesus? It's an eternally significant question, and one of the main points of John's gospel is to make it absolutely clear who Jesus is. That Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's the eternal Word of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. So, of course, He is God. Uh, Last time, we mentioned that the very statement of Jesus saying, I am, in this emphatic way, is a claim of deity. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will want to tell you that Jesus never himself claimed to be God. Only other people said that about him. Well, next time they knock on your door, I want you to be prepared. There are seven times in John's gospel where he simply says, I am, by itself. And of course, when we consider how God revealed himself in the Old Testament, we see that when he says this, he's equating himself with the great 
I am. Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush by the name I am who I am. I just exist independently. And then he spoke through the prophet Isaiah. God would identify himself by his own existence by just saying, I am he. And then in this series, uh, through the I am statements, there are seven times where he uses the same emphatic I am and completes it with a metaphor that connects his ministry to that of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So does Jesus ever claim to be God? Absolutely. He does. He does. So how, how does this metaphor of light help us to see this reality? We've been singing about light all morning. We've been praying for God to shine his light upon us. So turn back a few pages to John chapter 1. I want to read the first 14 verses. You'll recognize this if you're familiar with the Bible. John chapter 1. I'm going to read it, and then we'll, we'll make a few comments about it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So look back at verse 5. Is that verse talking about creation or the incarnation? Is that verse talking about when God pierced the physical darkness with physical light? Or when Jesus Christ pierced the spiritual darkness of the present world with the light of his redemptive work? Yes, of course. That's just it. Jesus is the only one qualified to, to bear up both of those concepts with the power of his person and work. Can you think of anything more powerful, overwhelming, and completely engulfing than the idea of God speaking light into pitch black? And yet creation prepares us for the utter incomprehensibility of God becoming man. The very one who spoke light into being, shining the light of his face on the earth. 
It reminds us of Psalm 36.9, For with you is a fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So the one who's described as the glory of Israel, we've, we've talked about these Old Testament festivals and ceremonies, the one who's described as the glory of Israel, and glory being one of those words that has a, has a whole host of meaning, and in the Old Testament we see it represented by light and fire, representing the very presence of God. And he now comes to say, I am the light of the world. And of course, Fast forward a bit to 1 John 1, 5. In his letter there, he says, he reminds us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember those precious words about becoming children of God. So we start putting these pieces together. Jesus is revealing the Father to the children. But then again, he adds these words, the world. What does that mean? I am the light of the world. Well, that means as in not just Israel. This is the whoever expansive nature of the new covenant. We read in Romans 1, it's first to the Jew, then to the Greek. Ephesians 2 and 3, we see Christ Christ is building a church of Jew and Gentile. And that means that the Messiah would come from and through the chosen people the Jewish people of the Old Testament, as he's a fulfillment of these ceremonies, but he offers himself to the whole world, the whole world, to shine the glory of God to all, regardless of class, regardless of age, ethnicity. He's the light of the world. And so for us, maybe that's to consider he's not just the light to our own culture, not just the light to our own political party, not just the light to our own race, our own class, our own profession. He's the light to the world, all who would call upon his name. So the, the first two points, have, we've, we've looked at the context of light to kind of understand what, is, when, what was happening when Jesus said this, this wonderful statement. Then we considered him as the source of light. We saw how when Jesus claims to be the light, he's claiming to be divine, to be God. And as we see that he's not only fulfilling what all of the Jewish people needed, we see that he is what we all need, as the light of the world. This is a matter not just of putting the pieces of biblical history together, but this is a matter of humanity being lost and found, a matter of the grand narrative of God's redemption. So our final point that we'll look at is the effect of light, the effect of light. And hear this promise, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's because of who he is that he can say that. In these I am statements, uh, we unpacked it last time, Jesus gives us his own illustrations. It's very convenient. He's taking something physical that we know very well, and he's using that to say something spiritual. So let's think about light. Why do we need light? Because the natural state of things is darkness. 
Have you ever been down in a cave so deep? And when they turn out any source of life there, light there, it is pitch black. It's pitch black. I remember going as a kid, and they used that pitch blackness to, to have this like laser light show against the wall uh, to tell the story of creation. Um, but it's pitch black, the natural state of things, with no intervention, is darkness. And God says, of course, in Genesis 1, 3, let there be light. And the light he called good. And the darkness, the absence of light, well, it's not good. So what does light do? Well, light reveals. It shows us the shape the color, the size, the texture of what's around us. It shows us a thing for what it really is. Light tells the truth. Life, light gives life, and it makes life possible. Try growing plants or crops without light. Imagine trying to operate in a city without any light. And light protects. Light comforts. Kids, have you ever been afraid of the dark? Have you ever been afraid not knowing what's there and wondering and, and imagining what might be there and it, and it bringing some fear? Well, light, when you turn on a lamp, maybe you've got a nightlight, it shows us what's really there and it comforts us. If you're walking in a dark place, we mentioned it earlier, light gives you more confidence to step more securely and confidently in the way that you're going. So light guides you to safety. So that's physical light. Well, what about spiritual light? What if we understood it in a different way? Jesus is actually in this particular context. We're recalling the physical light representing God's presence in the Old Testament but he's speaking to a group of people who don't understand. They don't understand what he's saying. They're in the dark, so to speak. They, they lack acceptance of the way things really are. So when Jesus links having the light of life with following him, he's casting our vision into the spiritual realm. Of course, there's physical realities, but they're downstream from the spiritual realities. So in the Bible, darkness is often used metaphorically to speak of sin or of ignorance. To be in darkness is to be without the truth, to be without knowledge, to live in a state of lies and lostness. Romans 1 paints this uh, terrible picture, claims that although deep down, because all people are made in the image of God, we know something about the reality of a creator— Romans 1 says sin is rejecting him. We've rejected him. We have not given him his due honor. And this is what it says. For although they knew God, Romans 1.21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And this is what sin has done. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
I was talking about this passage with a group of kids yesterday, and one seven-year-old boy, when he heard me read the part about our foolish hearts being darkened, you know what he said? He said, I kind of want to laugh at that, but I kind of also just want to be serious. I told him that that's a, that's a really helpful thing to realize. And I shared with him another verse from John 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He says, the light has come into the world. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They loved the darkness rather than the light. The sad reality of sin is that even though darkness sometimes scares us, sometimes our hearts are actually drawn to it. This is why I think haunted houses and scary movies are so popular. There's something in us that actually likes to play around with evil, to get near it. We think it's exciting. We think it's harmless. And yet, Scripture says it's appealing to us because it's touching something in our hearts that's a result of not giving honor to God, of being futile in our thinking, of having hearts that have been darkened. So in our natural state, we're wandering around in a world of darkness. The sun still shines, the stars still twinkle, electricity flows through our houses, but darkness is what Ephesians 6 calls this present world. And it says this, that our present world of darkness is ruled by spiritual forces of evil who do not want you to realize the darkness around you and within you. They don't want you to come to a proper understanding of the truth. They want you to have artificial intelligence, not true knowledge. And this is the kind of sinful ignorance that Jesus had in mind when he made that promise, whoever follows me will not walk in that darkness, but he will have the light of life. So why can Jesus make this kind of promise? We only trust people's promises if we think they're trustworthy and we think they're able to actually follow through. So why can we trust Jesus here? Well, let's go back to the second point. Because Jesus created light. He created life. And in a deeper, more significant sense, he is light, and he is life. And one of our favorite verses that we read at Christmas time is Isaiah 9, 2. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. To those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And the reality is that we're all born into darkness. And unless the light of Christ shines upon us, and within us, we remain in darkness. We remain in sin. But maybe you're a little skeptical that darkness is the right word to describe our situation. Maybe you're like, you know, I think I've actually got it mostly together. I generally avoid trouble, and I generally try to do what's right. And I mean, I know there's some bad stuff out there, but aren't... Aren't people just naturally good? Aren't, aren't we all going to just be okay? 
Well, there's another type of darkness that the Bible talks about, and it's called blindness. Uh, let's do a little experiment. Close your eyes for just a minute. If you want to cover your eyes, you can too for, for even more of a dark effect. I looked up a couple of colors that I did not know what color they actually were, and I'm going to use them. What if you were blind from birth, and I told you I was wearing a suit the color of Aegean and had a tie the color of Argent? Keep your eyes closed. Try to imagine that. Maybe some of you are very scientific and you know those colors, but most of us probably don't know those colors. So you would have some level of knowledge. You'd be like, well, Jonathan's got an Aegean suit with an Argent tie. You can open your eyes. But you wouldn't know what that means. I wouldn't know what that means. I looked up the colors and I've already forgotten what they look like. <laughs> you could say that I'm wearing that color, but you have no idea what it actually means. You would have relative truth and you could say something true, but you wouldn't have a full truth. You wouldn't have a full grasp of that concept. Those who are spiritually blind can learn truth relatively. I mean, that's God's common grace. He's shined his light on all men that we could have some relative truth, as Pastor Tom mentioned earlier, so that we're not completely lost in all humanity. But without the light of Christ and the gospel, we cannot know what that truth actually means. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Maybe you've thought about it or you've read this before. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I see everything else. And the spiritual forces in this world would want nothing more than for you to remain blind to the reality around you, to remain in the dark, even about being in the dark. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, and we're going to look at another verse, if you'd like to turn there after I read this first one. This is, this is the stark predicament. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's another analogy um, from the philosopher Plato, Plato's cave. Maybe college student philosophy majors, you could probably explain this a lot better than I can. But in this analogy, Plato describes prisoners in a cave, and they've been chained, and they've been facing a certain direction. And above them and behind them, there's a light, and there's shadows that people are making to shine on the wall. And all these prisoners know are what they see on the shadows. And they've been kept there long enough that they've forgotten what reality is like. And that's the only reality they see. In order to get true knowledge, so they've got some relative knowledge, those are real shadows and they're real things, but in order to get true knowledge, they've got to be set free. And they've got to be able to get up, turn around, and look at the light and look at the objects to make true assessments of what they are. Now, Plato would say that to be set free from that, you just need better philosophy, and he's happy to provide it for you. But philosophy has never healed a man born blind. 
Philosophy has never raised a man from the dead. When we look at Scripture to be set free from that predicament that we're all born into, we need the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants to demonstrate the trustworthiness of his promise. If you look over in John 9, flip over one or two pages, Jesus heals a man physically who's been born blind, and he gives him sight. He floods his world of darkness with light. And then we read to see that this physical healing is connected with the man's spiritual healing. Not only does he get to see the light around him, but Jesus floods his heart with the light of the gospel. Jesus demonstrates his promise with a physical miracle to show that we can trust his promise. So if naturally the God of this world, lowercase g, you'll read in your Bible from 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the enemy and his minions, if they've blinded the minds of unbelievers, well, how do we get out? How do we escape that predicament? We'll read on two verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the relationship of light to darkness? This was John 1, 5. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, but it is completely overwhelmed that the darkness would run away. If the God of this world wants to blind the minds of unbelievers, well, nothing's going to stop Jesus Christ from shining the light in the hearts to make us believers, to give us freedom from our dark predicaments. Paul has this wonderful prayer in Colossians 1. And this is one of the keys here. He says this. He knows everyone's natural state. And he says this. Colossians 1.9. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Down to verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Look at the way those verbs work there. And it's not that we have just escaped out of this domain of darkness, but he has delivered us and transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of the light of the world. So if you're here and you're looking around the world and you're seeing spiritual darkness, if you catch yourself realizing that not only is there darkness around you, but there's darkness within you, and you're not really sure where to turn in these moments of this honest conversation in your head. Follow Paul's prayer here. Pray for spiritual wisdom and understanding. Light is exposing. 
It's one of the reasons we hide and cover up and we remain in the dark because we fear coming into the light. We fear that our darkened hearts would be exposed like undeveloped film would be ruined by bringing it out into the sun. But ruin is the exact opposite of Jesus' promise. For those who have experienced the flood of light, here's uh, three points of application. Number one, follow Christ's word. Keep walking in his light. Remember Psalm 119, 105 says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Look to his word, God's reliable guide for this life. You know, when we go on a journey, we go hiking, we, we set out on a road trip, we need a reliable guide. Most of the time, Google Maps is pretty reliable, not always, but we want a reliable guide. And if you want a reliable guide for life this morning, look to the light of God's word. Number two, follow Christ's command. It's astounding to think of Jesus' identity as the light of the world and then to remember what he said in Matthew 5, how he's chosen to send his light to the world now, now that he's in heaven. How, how is he sending his light to all the corners of the world? Well, in Matthew 5, he said, you, the church, believers, you are the light of the world. How can he say this? Because he's living inside of you. And as you go to every corner of the world, every corner of our community, every corner of the relational lives that you share with one another, you carry the light of Christ with you. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of the light, so that as you shine as a light in the world, Others would see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. And number three, follow Christ's heart. Follow his heart. As I was preparing for this sermon, I read firsthand descriptions from people who had been born blind. Firsthand descriptions of what it's like for them to have no concept of sight grasping at words to try to explain this idea of color, but not really knowing what it means. Trying to explain the unique loneliness they feel in a world of darkness. Or to explain what it's like that something is within sight, but not within reach. As I read this, I felt compassion welling up in my heart. And as believers, when we consider the spiritual blindness of those who don't have the light of Christ, should we not feel that compassion welling up inside us? Should, should we not feel grief and sorrow that our, our friends and families are groping about in the dark trying to hold on to something solid so that they don't fall? Or do we feel pride? Do we feel privilege? Like, we're better. We do well to remember that we're all born blind. 
We're all born blind. We're all born in the dark, but that's why Jesus came. A few chapters later in John 12, he says, I come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We read else that Jesus looked out on the crowds, harassed and helpless, and he had what? He had compassion. So as we look out on a world that is in the dark, that's spiritually blind, let us have compassion. Let's have compassion and follow Christ's heart there. Just in closing, here's a few thoughts on believing in Jesus. Jesus gave up the light of heaven for the darkness of earth. He walked this world of darkness so that you could walk in his light. He hung on the cross as God made the world dark at high noon, experiencing the Father's wrath and the darkness of death so that he could make his face to shine upon you the light of life. And he's risen and he's ascended into heaven that one day night would be no more. Hear this promise from Revelation 21, 22, and 23. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So do you want true knowledge? Are you lost in the darkness of this world? Do you want true comfort? Do you want true confidence? Do you want true life? Look to Christ, the light of the world. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we confess that apart from your sovereign mercy, we are all born blind, born into the darkness. And we wander about in the domain of darkness. And we can't get out. But, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that, that you have come, the light of the world, to shine in our hearts by faith the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to him, may we see him and all his benefits. And may we look to his word to guide us in this life that we might shine as lights in the world. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.